Hello, and welcome to Co-OpCast, your one-stop for cooperative game news and reviews. On this week's design discussion, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will discuss a board game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. We are coming at you with a special episode. Not one of our reviews, but lists, because everybody loves lists, right? And it's a top 10 list at that, so, I mean, I think we're making that famous. And wait, double top 10 lists. How many of those do you see? So we each have a 10 list, all our own. That's what makes it special. That's the swanky upgrade there. Yes, because nobody else does that anywhere. There are no podcasts with multiple hosts who have top 10 lists. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know of any. I don't know what you're referring to. But anyway, all right, we, we've taken this too far. So our top 10, we're going to do the top 10 games that we have the strongest feelings about currently. It doesn't mean our top 10 favorite games. It doesn't mean our top 10 most hated games. These are just games we have a lot of feelings about right now. Yeah, these games got us in the feels. And my list is slightly different than Peter's. I took kind of my own tack with it. Mine is uh, the 10 games that we've reviewed that I have the strongest change in feelings on. So some of them I've become I've come to like them much more since we reviewed them and some uh not not so happy not not so good feelings after marinating on them a bit longer. And the only restriction I left myself is I didn't want to discuss things that we have upcoming reviews on. So we know we're doing the Lord of the Rings versus Arkham Horror head-to-head debate. I didn't list either of those. And also Flashpoint Fire Rescue which is our next plan review that Hopefully, we'll come out to you guys in a couple weeks. Yeah, me me either. So I didn't put either of those. So I think we're on the same page. All right, but we've gotten a lot of ratings and reviews since we last talked. So I did want to go over one of them really quick, just because I think it's funny. So this is more for entertainment value than the fact that I think this might be the best review we have. But I kind of like it. Well, I haven't heard it yet, so hit, hit me. All right, so this is from J Money. J Money. <laughs> yeah, it's J underscore dollar sign. Nice. He says, I like it. Honestly, I'm not all that into board games. I just like listening to people talk about things they're pretty passionate about. These guys are certainly passionate about board games, and their voices and delivery are not offensive. Keep it up. I dig it. <laughs> That's, that is the best review I've ever heard. Yeah. I, I strive for nothing more than to be inoffensive. <laughs> I mean, the best part about it is, like, with all that inoffensive, like, you're not doing too bad, keep it up. You would expect, like, a three-star review, but that was a five-star review. Like, That's right, man. Our passion just carried the day. We didn't offend. Maybe Jay Money, like, if he's not offended, it's a five. He only goes from one to five. There's nothing in between. And I also wanted to do a special call out to Court Jester, who had a very long, very nice review of us as well. I'm not going to go through that whole thing, but thank you so much for your reviews. I think you found out today that if you write something funny, we'll probably read it. And for the rest of you, we really do appreciate all the work you put into the reviews, though. We do definitely appreciate it, and we've read them all. And don't forget, even if you don't have time to write a review, just go and give us a star rating, whatever you think is fair. But of course, we'd love a five on iTunes, and uh, it all helps to make us more visible, get more listeners, let us do more cool things with the podcast. Yeah, and speaking of cool things, I think sometime soon, all of our listeners can go over to YouTube, to Colin's YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop, and see your first, what we're going to call, five and five reviews. So you want to talk a little about that? Yeah, so uh, by the time you're listening to this, the first one should already be up. 
So go check it out. It's on the same one-stop co-op shop YouTube channel as Colin's videos, but it's going to be its own little sub-channel. And it's five and five because I talk about uh, five things about the game, similar to the five things I've done in the review, but in a very condensed five-minute version with some humor, some dressing up, some shots of the game. Should be a lot of fun. My wife, Vanessa, who's a graphic designer and illustrator, has done some amazing Flash animation transitions for it. So, yeah, go, go check them out and, and leave a like if you enjoy it. Awesome. I'm looking forward to seeing the full thing. I've seen the uh, rough edit, and it's pretty hilarious. I was digging it. Thanks, man. It's funny how uh, to create five minutes of content on the internet takes about five hours of work. <laughs> so. Same with editing the podcast, but the podcast is not five minutes, so I I can imagine how painstaking that must be. The good thing is I'm streamlining my process, so I think it'll be down to probably one to two hours for an average episode, and that's not too bad. I can certainly handle that every every other week or so. Cool. Well, without any more delay, let's get into our top ten list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so who's going first, you or me? Why don't you go first? All right, so I'm excited. Like I, I, I think this is really fun. I will say now a little preview Four of the games on my top ten list, my opinion of the game improved. Six of the games, my opinion went down. So I guess I'm slightly more critical than average? I don't know. You are typically the critical one, so that this is like kind of sticking with your normal MO. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I'll own that. And hey, my number ten is a game that we reviewed recently, and it's also the game that if you go and watch my first video review is what I did a video review on. And that is Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle, the deck builder we reviewed recently. So my opinion of this was somewhat okay because I played with my wife through, I think, the first five or six books in pretty quick succession. And she's such a huge Harry Potter fan that we had a lot of fun just opening the packs and such. But I did very quickly see the limitations in the deck building and also how long the game got. The game just gets longer and longer as you progress through the books. So I had a somewhat negative opinion of it. But then in playing it again for the podcast, and especially for my video review, my opinion really went down even further to the point where I'm like, this is one of the weakest deck builders I've ever played. And interestingly, I played it with my five-year-old after our review, and he really liked it for the first couple of plays. But then even he, seeing through the eyes of a five-year-old, like nothing should be more exciting than opening up boxes and adding cool cards to your deck. And even he was like, this game's taking a while. (laughs) So yeah, Harry Potter... I can't trade or sell that thing fast enough. Like, I have no need to own that anymore. (laughs) So that's my number 10. Yeah, my kids still like it, but I can't disagree with anything you've said. And for more of our opinions, check out episode 40 and Mike's 5 and 5. So my number 10 is Gloomhaven. Oh! And it's interesting that it is here on the list. It almost didn't make the list, to be honest. And these are supposed to be 10 games I'm excited about, but it says something that this is my number 10... And I think my big problem with Gloomhaven, and this is not negative. Actually, this is, I'm excited to play it, but I'm going to speak negatively, kind of like we did in our review. It was a bunch of negative stuff, and then we said it was great. Everybody needs to go out and buy it. So my biggest thing with Gloomhaven is I've forgotten the story already. I feel like it's the kind of game where you have to play every week to kind of keep up with not only the story, but just you get into a groove while playing that game. And so... The reason it's not higher on my list and the reason it's kind of a trepidatious number 10 is I feel like once we start playing it, we have to keep playing it. Like I have that feeling. I want to play through the end of the campaign, but I want to get through all these other games I want to play first. And it feels like that keeps happening. 
I get excited about another new game, and Gloomhaven gets pushed back again. So it's my number 10, but it seems like it keeps getting pushed back. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that, because Gloomhaven didn't make my list, but it was one that almost did. Because I would say my opinion of it has gone down just a little bit. And not in terms of how brilliant the design is, but I'm just not playing it much. And I think it is because it feels like, as you said, I need to put other games aside to really devote enough time to it. And that's, in a way, a fabulous thing. Like, for a game to be one of those kind of lifestyle games that you spend all your time thinking about and playing. But with someone like us, who are constantly having to play new games to have new content to put up and and have kids and have a life... I just haven't had time for it. So I think at some point I'll come back to Gloomhaven and devour it and adore it and love it. But, you know, it might not be until I'm retiring at age 60 or something. And just to be clear before Mike gets into his number nine, I think you guys all have lives, even if you're playing Gloomhaven all the time. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry. Not to criticize any of our listeners. I, I just think other people are, are better at managing their priorities, maybe. And if Gloomhaven's a priority, you can find the time for it. All right, so my number nine is The Mind, another one that we've reviewed fairly recently. Uh Uh-oh, we're going to fight now, aren't we? No, so this one is an improvement. It's it's not so much an improvement after we reviewed it, because I feel about as good about it now as I did when we reviewed it. But for me, it's just interesting how negative my opinion of was it when I first heard about it and read about the rules, which seems to be a somewhat common thing. I heard about it and I was like, this isn't even a game. This is this is nothing. Why would anyone care about this? Why is this on the hotness so much? And then I played it and I loved it. And then I played it more and I was like, ah, I want to play this all the time. So I think my experience mirrors a lot of other people. And sadly, I think some people who might really enjoy the game will never get a chance to play it because of that kind of negative knee-jerk reaction some people are going to have to it just hearing the basics. But yeah, The Mind is a great game, and I did not think it would be when I first heard about it. So sorry, The Mind. I still love you. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, you know I agree. I I love The Mind as well. But my number nine is Legendary Encounters. And this is on the rise for me, probably because I bought it from you. (laughs) Yes. So So you're you're, going to hear about quite a few of the games on my list as well, where... Within our game group, who pretty much only plays games with each other, we're buying games from each other. It's not like I couldn't play the games anyway, but it says something if one of us wants to buy a game that we could play or borrow anyway from the other person. And I have two reasons for this being on my excited list. Number one is, when it was still yours, half of your stuff was sleeved and half wasn't. I think the alien was sleeved and Predator wasn't. And I didn't want to, like, kind of mess with your system. But as soon as I get that game, I think I'm going to rip them all out of sleeves. That way I can play Predator. I can play Alien vs. Predator. I love Predator myself. So I'm really excited to explore all that. Plus, I want to get the Alien expansion. And so because of all those reasons, I'm excited to get it back to the table and try the additional content, which I haven't had a chance to try yet. Yeah, that's fair. I'm I'm glad you're buying it. (laughs) All right. So what's your number eight? My number eight, uh, like Legendary Encounters, is a game that was in my collection and has now left it. And that is the Dresden Files card game, which I uh, think traded or sold to somebody just a couple weeks ago. So this one, in my opinion, has gone down a bit, obviously. And the the couple of things that really affected that the most... The first one is, and I don't think this was in our review, but just playing it more kind of comes to my mind. It is a puzzle that has to be solved each time you play it, and a different puzzle each time. But I do feel the more I play it that the puzzle is more easily or less easily winnable very much by what cards randomly come out and what order that puzzle is randomly put in. 
without much of my agency and choice having an effect on it. Right. And that just started to grade on me and be more annoying. It's like, okay, so it's sort of like playing a, a much less good and simpler game, but like basic solitaire. I don't feel like I'm that skilled in solitaire. I just feel like I'm wasting time. You know, if the cards come out the right way, I win. If they don't, I lose. And the fact that a game that has so much more going on and is for a property that I love, I love those books, where I also feel like I don't have a ton of choice and skill in winning or losing, I don't know. It kind of lowered into my estimation. Yeah, I mean, I love the IP as well. I mean, I can't wait. I hope they have a movie or a TV series or something. I know there was one, but here it was awful. I, I liked it okay, but yeah, not not very good. Especially once you read the books and you see how they butchered episodes of the uh, show that were based on books. Yeah, I mean, I love the series. I love the world. I love the universe. I wish, you know, I hope that someday there is a game with a little more meat on the bones because, I mean, it did a good job of having all your favorite characters in there. It did a good job of differentiating them. For me, the game was uninspiring and forgettable, and that was unfortunate for me. So I kind of hope that they do come up with a game where there's more, you feel like you're the characters more. Yeah, I mean, a big kind of nail in the coffin for it that made me want to get rid of it is just how investigations and combat are identical, and neither feels like investigating or combat, and that was just a little annoying in the end. Hello, Seventh Continent. Oh, I'm sorry. That didn't make my list. Let's move no, on. No, you're, you're wrong. We'll play that again, and I will show you that it's a good game. But for now, <laughs> you're number eight. My number eight is Mansions of Madness. Ooh. So this one's on the rise for me as well. Most of mine are on the rise. This is a game where there's so much content out now, and we haven't played it in such a long time that I just want to get it back to the table. And that's always a good sign for a game. A game I haven't played in a while, and I just want to play more. It's funny because I was actually pretty negative on this game the first time I played it because I was like, I don't feel like I'm doing anything. I feel like I'm just sitting back and watching a movie. And while I don't know that that impression was completely wrong, I don't know how much agency you do have in the game, it's still fun and I still want to see those stories and I still want to live through those stories. So for me, that's a good sign. When I'm in the mood for not thinking too much in a night and I just want to do something that's fun to do... That's when I want to play Mansions of Madness. Well, that's going to show up on my list later, so I'll hold my thoughts. My number seven is Sword and Sorcery. This is also on the decline. I have a lot of declines. Like, kind of, my my improves are all at the top of my list. So even though I was, in some ways, a defender of Sword and Sorcery in the Sword and Sorcery versus Gloomhaven debate Steve and I had fairly recently on the podcast. By the way, you weren't supposed to be. Yes, and I was supposed to be all on Gloomhaven, so it is funny. But I also sold my copy of Sword and Sorcery last week, having never played the Act 2 content I had gotten, having never played the Arcane Portal campaign that I know Steve has really been raving about. So, like Gloomhaven and a lot of really large campaign-paced games, it's hard to get Sword and Sorcery to the table. But whereas for Gloomhaven, I'm like, man, when I get time to get it to the table, I'm going to have a ton of fun. I just realized for Sword and Sorcery, I was like, oh, when I have time to get that to the table, it'll be a game. And <laughs> it wasn't enough for the amount of investment and the like complication of dealing with the AI. I still have Galaxy Defenders, the earlier game using a very similar system. But that one, again, I'm like, man, if I get that to the table, I'm going to have a great time with it. Because I think the AI and the tactics are so much better in that one compared to Sword and Sorcery. So... With the number of fantasy co-op dungeon crawlers I already have, Sword and Sorcery, had to go. Sorry, buddy. You're number seven, and you're out. 
<laughs> so speaking of fiddly messes, my number seven is Assault on Doomrock. But ironically enough, this one's on the rise for me. So I saw they were redoing a second edition of Assault on Doomrock, and the game itself, I had a lot of fun with the combat. We actually are trying to use like the dice combat system. We're kind of incorporating that in some games we've worked on, and it's inspired even our robot game a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think they've done a lot of really good things, but there's also a lot of complicated mess in that game, and especially when you add the Doompocalypse expansion where you have terrain and stuff like that. It's just another level of complication, and the game takes a little bit longer than I want it to, so this may be one that quickly falls back out of my wanting to play once I do get it to the table. I don't really have much of a desire to play it with other people. It does seem more of a solo game than a co-op game to me, just because you have one marker on the board. Now, the thing that excites me, though, is they're talking about the second edition. They're talking about streamlining it and adding in reasons for multiple people to do multiple things on the map stage between the combats. So I'm pretty excited to get it to the table just to remember the parts I liked about the game and then get excited for a second edition, which hopefully will clean up the stuff I didn't like about it. Yeah, if we ever do a review of Assault on Doomrock... I, too, have strong feelings about that. It is so brilliantly designed in many parts and then so sluggish and long in other parts. So that would be an interesting episode if we ever get to it. My number six, I have a strong suspicion, Peter, this will be in your top three. So we'll see if I'm proved right later. Is Pandemic Legacy Season 2. And this one is also Decline. At the beginning of playing it, I was really excited. I loved the theme. I loved the components and the art style and everything. And no spoilers on months, but I'll say my excitement lasted for about the first two months, waned for a couple of months, went down in the gutter like I was kind of being dragged into playing it until maybe the final two or three months, and then somewhat picked up a little bit for the last three months. But overall... It was one of the weaker campaign experiences I've had, and I feel like out of the 14 or 15 plays we got out of it, which to be fair is a lot for a game, but out of the 14 or 15 plays, I enjoyed maybe four or five of them total, and that's not a great ratio. So respect a lot of the design in the game, but did not hit that fun level for me like I wanted it to. Yeah, I don't have much to say about that one. Wait, that the that's a, a prelude to things to come, right? I'm going to I'm gonna reserve my comments. Yes, okay, that's what I thought. That's fine. <laughs> I'm just like, you, you do, I think. <laughs> but sorry, go ahead. What's your number six? So my number six is Imperial Assault. So I know you've talked about it, so I know it's on the top of your mind, which leads me to believe it'll be on your list somewhere as well. So if I had to guess, I would guess that would be in one of your top three. But with all the Star Wars movies that have been coming out lately, with the amount of Star Wars I've immersed myself in lately... With just my positive feelings toward that universe and wanting to play app-based games. I mean, I said Mansions of Madness earlier, but obviously Imperial Assault's even higher on my list. I want to get it back to the table because we've only played one or two missions in the campaign. And I'd really like to make it through that entire campaign. I'm super excited to play it again. Even though I thought the AI was a little wonky in it. Hopefully they've either cleaned that up over time or I know with you there running it, it's not going to be that big of a deal anyway. So... That's my number six, is Imperial Assault. And I'll say this totally would have been on my list, except that we haven't officially reviewed it. We reviewed Descent, uh, Road to Legend, and talked about it briefly. 
But yes, if we had reviewed it, it would have been on my list for two reasons, actually. Number one, I still haven't finished the five-mission campaign, and I love it, and I've gotten more expansions for Imperial Assault, so we have more options and things to see. But the other really cool thing, if nobody's seen this on Board Game Geek, this uh, user independently created his own cooperative web app that allows you to play he just finished recently the entire base game campaign and all the missions in it. And he's now working on some of the mini campaigns, I believe. So I'm not only excited to play with the app, but also the app, as Peter said, has some problems. So I'm really excited to play through the core campaigns that I've never gotten to with this independently uh, developed but amazing uh, web-based app. So, yeah, I'm excited about Imperial Assault a lot, too. So definitely, if you're all about it, we can play that whenever because I'm ready. Yeah, absolutely. What's your number five? My number five, mentioned earlier by you, but it's going down for me, is Mansions of Madness. So I forget if I had mentioned this when we played the review. I don't think so because I think we played this mission after the review. We played one or two missions more recently, and both of them fell completely flat for me. And... It was the bad case of a narrative game trying to give me a narrative theme-based experience where I could see the the game design in it and the failures of that game design where they wanted to give me the illusion of choice and having an effect on the story. But it was very easy for me to see how they had designed the scenario and that my choice meant nothing at all. And, and actually, now that I think about it, I think this was in the episodes. So maybe my opinion hasn't gone down that much. But basically, with the game already taking a long time, my opinion has gone down a lot. And I'll still play it with you and Jerry Peter, but if you all wanted to play it two-player without me there, I would not object at all. I'm really not that excited to play it anymore. Especially, I, I hate to say it, this game's not on my list. As Peter said, I didn't include it, but Arkham Horror LCG, I adore that game. It's the same setting, but I find everything about that game better than Mansions of Madness, just personally. So I, I don't really need to play that game, and I'm not really excited to play it. So that's my number five. Well, to be fair to Mansions of Madness, most people aren't going to see the strings behind it for two reasons. Number one, most people are never going to play the mission more than once. Fair. They're playing it through once to see the story. Absolutely. That's that's true. So, and you're the kind of person that will click through it several times just through the app, not playing the game, to kind of see what they changed. Most people aren't going to do that. So even if they play it a second time... I don't think most people will see the strings even if they do that. You've really got to dig into it to try to figure out what the strings are in order to see that they're giving you false choices. Yeah, that, that's that's an entirely fair point. I'm not trying to say that anybody else won't enjoy Mansions of Madness. I still recommend it as a game. But, yeah, as a designer, I was clicking through, like Peter said, to see, ooh, what cool things do they do to make this work? And then I realized very quickly, nothing cool at all. So <laughs> I guess that's what disappointed me, because I was hoping to be inspired for my own game designs, and instead I, was, I felt let down. Right. All right. Well, my number five, you've already mentioned it, and the ones I've been quiet on, you'll probably figure out as this list goes higher and higher, it's because I have more to say about them. My number five is one of my two negatives, and that is Sword and Sorcery. Ah. Man, when I was listening to you debate Sword and Sorcery (laughs) versus Gloomhaven, and when you said, like, the tactics, it was a toss-up, or Gloomhaven barely squeaks it out, I almost threw my iPad out of my car just so I could get far enough away that it wouldn't reach my Bluetooth anymore. (laughs) I, I was done at that point. I can't believe... 
the tactics in Gloomhaven are everything in that game. And the tactics in Sword and Sorcery are, Don't hey, exist. if I put another dude on the same space, then I get to roll an extra dice. I wonder what I should do. There is okay. nothing tactical about that game at all. I said that during the review. I still say it to this day now. There's no tactics to that game. You pile everybody in one space, and that way you get more dice than the enemy, and they don't get more dice than you. I mean, there's no tactical elements of the game. I don't understand. All right, I'm, I'm not going to fight you on it. I, I conceded. I, I messed up there. I sold the game. I'm, I'm on your side now. Yeah, and for something that is... I get it. There's some cool things in there. I like how they add things to the enemies to make them different from for each time you pull them up. But the way they do it, it's so fiddly and it's so hard to run. I mean, when I played it with you, I had a better opinion. And I'll be honest, I still like the story. I thought the story was pretty good. I would actually probably read back through the story. That's going to be a controversial opinion too, probably, because I know they did some hokey stuff in the story, which at first I didn't like, but I actually kind of grew to like that part. And that's the only thing. I kind of wish I had read through the campaign books, but... As far as gameplay goes, gosh, there's so many fiddly little things for something that has so little tactics. It, it was, it's just frustrating to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. <laughs> that's, all, that's all I'll say. All right, so you don't have to go back to the Gloomhaven versus Sword and Sorcery. They're both wrong on it. Just listen to that rant, and there you go. There's your, <laughs> all you need to know about Sword and Sorcery. That is the final opinion. Yes. All right, Mike, what's your number four? So my number four is very similar to Mansions of Madness, very similar journey, and that's Time Stories. And I'm sorry to say, especially to Jamie Stegmeier, who was on that episode with us and big fan of the game, my opinion of this has gone down. And it's interesting because talking to Jamie, he was so excited about the game that I found myself liking it more and wanting to play it more. So I borrowed it from our friend Jerry, who has, I think, almost all of the expansions, and played through three of them in quick succession with my wife. And... If I look back to the core campaign in the game, the base game, I think it was fabulous, except for the problem of the time loop mechanic being kind of underwhelming and forcing you to be repetitive in the gameplay. But besides that, I thought that was a great campaign, fun puzzles, I loved it. Every single other one I've played, and I've played, I think, four other expansions now, has major issues of one kind or another that majorly frustrated me when playing it, so... I'm not saying Time Stories can't pull it out. I still haven't played some of the latest ones, which I know some people like the best. But it's going to be a hard sell for me to play it again because I just really kind of like Mansions of Madness. Maybe other people wouldn't even notice it. But looking at the game design and the choices they made in the scenarios, I have major issues for every single one except for the base game. So this, by the way, is my last negative opinion over time. All the rest of the three that are left on my list are improvements. So I'm going to be happy for the rest of the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, so so nothing against people who love Time Stories. I still think it's really got some good stuff. I just think some of the scenario design is really underwhelming and makes some choices I don't support. Yeah, and I guess we should have said this earlier. Even if our opinions aren't good on some of these games, like Sword and Sorcery, we don't think you're dumb if you like them. Same with, you know, any of these things. These are just our opinions, how we felt when we play it. I know some of my favorite games people hate as well. So we're all going to have our own opinions. We're all going to have our own thoughts. But if you relate to us, then you might relate to some of the things that we're saying with some of these things. So, Steve, I don't hate you because you love Sword and Sorcery. (laughs) He hates you for other reasons, Steve. Well, that might be true. (laughs) 
You got to wait for the Arkham versus Lord of the Rings debates to find out about all of that. Yeah, it'll be, Arkham versus Lord of the Rings SmackDown. There's going to be no debate. There. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're going to win. We're going to win. Yeah, just a little preview. We did a, a survey on our Slack and a survey on our Facebook channel. Slack was kind of mixed, but it wasn't that many people voting. Facebook, major landslide for Arkham Horror LCG. The best game, clearly, out of those two. Yeah, let's not give away too much ammunition before that episode Well, comes. yeah, you're right. You're right. Sorry. Sorry. Got to save our best stuff. All right. So let's talk about my number four, which is... I love this game when I first played it, and I still want to play it all the time. I played it again at Beer Mongers not very long ago with two or three strangers. I can't remember if it was a three or four player game, and I still loved it, and that's Aeon's End. Oh. That game does deck building so well, and every time I play it, and I know there are some things that, you know, the money isn't that differentiated. You know, there's a lot of get two coins type money in the game, but... I don't know. There's something about that game. I think the lack of shuffling, I think the multiple things to spend your money on, I think the tension. I don't know how they do it, but that game always comes down to the last couple turns, it feels like. Like, they balance the enemies, and every enemy you face feels so different. So I understand that some of the cards you can buy, which there are millions of at this point, can be uninspiring at times, and some of the spells kind of do similar things, and a lot of the money does very similar things. That stuff doesn't bother me because the rest of the game is so good and I feel the way I want to feel when I'm playing it. I feel happiness that I'm always have something to buy. Like other deck builders will have like three money and I'm like, I don't really want to buy anything. I've never had that experience with Aeon's End. There's always something for me to do with that money. And then the fact that it always comes down to a close finish, like, I don't know. The game just sings to me. No, it, it's a great one. I'm I'm ready to play that whenever, especially now with War Eternal, the, the greater variety you get in the game. It used to be that you would see the exact same level one cards pretty much every game for the enemies, and now you get variety in that, so I, I'm a big fan of that game. Didn't make my list, but big fan. Cool. So I've got three improvements on my top, and every single one of these is a game that I bought after we did our podcast episode. So <laughs> something about the podcast episode convinced me to spend my own money to get it. So the first one, it's not a game that would be in my top 10 of co-ops necessarily, but talking about it did make me want to play it more. And that is Escape, the real-time game. Escape from the Temple or whatever the, uh, the full title is. Escape the Curse of the Temple, I think. Yeah, that sounds right. And specifically, in talking about it, I thought about how much more fun the game could be with some of the expansions that I never played, and it made me go and do research on the expansions that were out there. And then, randomly, I don't know what Amazon was doing, but Amazon has been having oddly huge sales on Queen Games from time to time over the last few months. So for some reason, the second big box version, which includes the game and every expansion released up to that point, like a crazy value that I think on the Kickstarter was like 80 or $100, Amazon had it for like $35 for like with a couple copies left. So I immediately snatched it up because I'd been thinking about it after the podcast and we just played it in my game group last night. And it's such a fun game. And, and I haven't played all the expansions at all. There's so much content in that big box version. But I've played with the quests specifically, and those are awesome. Like, what a great expansion to really give the game more life. 
because it takes away the simplicity of doing the exact same thing in every game and gives you some other couple of tasks to resolve and deal with, which is just enough to make the game that much more interesting and varied. So, yeah, uh, went from in the podcast itself, I wasn't that big of a fan, and, and now I own it, and it's it's one of my favorite real-time games. So, Escape. Yeah, you know, I love that game when it first came out, and I haven't played it much since then. And I don't remember what my opinion was at the time, but I do like that game a lot. And it's something that's real straightforward and simple, which these real-time games have to be, but gives you that fun excitement of rolling dice really fast, which I find more stimulating than things like A Pirate's Tale, which I really like for the gameplay and story, but it's not as exciting to flip over a sand timer. Like, that fast rolling of the dice, getting your heart rate up, is really something I enjoy and have fun with. Absolutely. What's your number three, Peter? So, here it comes. <laughs> Matt Leacock, I love you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I love a lot of your games. I've, I, I, unlike Mike, I love Pandemic. I love the Forbidden series. I can't wait for Forbidden Sky to come out. Everybody go out and buy it. Pandemic Legacy Season 1 is still one of my favorite co-ops that I've ever played. Had a great time with it. <sighs> but Pandemic Legacy Season 2... <laughs> Is the game, this almost made my number one. Like, if I didn't. I, I wanna, thought it would be. I'm, I'm really surprised it's not. If I didn't want to end on a happy note, <laughs> then this would have maybe been my number one. <laughs> no game has ever made me so angry. <laughs> we all know it's a legacy game, so it's disposable anyway. But I literally, after we were done our last game of it, I stood up threw the pieces everywhere, and ripped the board into about a million pieces. I was so mad at just the way the game scaled. I was so frustrated. I don't know if I've talked about this anywhere yet. Pandemic Legacy Season 1 didn't seem too overly long between games for me. Setup seemed to take 30 minutes plus for each game, and we were finishing the games because it was so easy at the end, in, like, less than 30 minutes. So we're spending more time reading story, which... Uh, that's the other thing. Pandemic Legacy Season 1, I was so into the story. Pandemic Legacy Season 2, I was so confused by the story. And I still, after finishing the campaign, had to look up what they were talking about for half the stuff. Like, I was so confused. And it just... It jumped all over the place. It went from way too impossibly hard to way too simple where we're done the game before we started. We're like, oh yeah, in three turns we could do this, this, and this, and we won. Like, what? Like, how is that possible? Like, why are we playing this game? I was so angry at the end because I felt like we had wasted so much time playing it, and there were so much better games that I should have been playing, but I just wanted to get through the story and kind of hoped it gelled and hoped there was some moment that, like, jumped out to me, and there was one near the end moment that jumped out that might have been worthwhile but i understand why it's not getting very many ratings and i understand why not many people are talking about it like i think people are just in shock and they're like season one was so good what's going on with season two i think a lot of people either aren't finishing it or just aren't talking about their experience with it because i've heard some positive things but i haven't heard much about it in general yeah and i'll it was, it was higher on my list because I actually did enjoy the story a little bit by the end, and I wasn't as frustrated. I enjoyed the final scenarios more than Peter, and when he ripped the board, I was not nearly as upset as he was. 
But yes, it, I think I prefer regular Pandemic and certainly prefer the Forbidden series to Pandemic Legacy Season 2. I would say it's probably the, for me, the weakest version of that engine that I've played. Yeah. And, and it sounds like you're in full agreement with that, Peter. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, when you talk about the cone of possibility, and this is a term I think we got from Matt Leacock, actually, I think it's too big in the game. I think there's too much variation as far as what could happen. I think having three or four copies of each city card in the deck could lead to wild swings of, like, absolute destruction. But then it seemed like we got these combinations that were so powerful. And a lot of games, when you get those combinations, they do something to make them not as powerful as they originally are. But, well, whatever. I'm not even going to get into it. I just, it was (laughs) frustrating. Your thoughts are clear. All right, Mike, let's bring us back up. What's your number two? My number two. Man, I gave this game a glowing review. I think I think it might be one of the few games on the podcast where all five of my points were pros. I'd have to listen and go back, but I think that might be the case. But it's even better than that. And that is Spirit Island. Yeah, I had a feeling that might be here for you. Yeah. This is a one that, like Peter said earlier, buying Legendary Encounters for me... I just bought this for my friend Jerry after borrowing it from him for a while because I was like, I don't ever want to give this back to you. I want to have this game available to play whenever. And a big thing that made me love it even more, I played it a lot solo and I adored it solo, but I didn't think I could really play it with anybody besides my my major gamer group, Peter and Jerry, in terms of multiplayer. But then after we did our episode, I played it with my wife and it went amazing and she loved it. And then I played with one of our casual friends in a three-player game, and it went amazing. And the friend was raving about the game and how much fun it was and wanted to play it again the next time they came over. So I now appreciate it's still an amazing design, really, really great game. But on top of that, I'm surprised by how accessible it is and how easy it is for less experienced gamers to really have a good time with it. So it just makes it even better. This is definitely, I mean, we'll do a top 10 of of co-ops eventually. And this will be on it. I'll just say that much. Spirit Island. Ridiculously good game. Yeah, it's funny. And we say this about co-ops, and it was part of our episode zero. If somebody knows a co-op, one of the best parts about co-ops is you can introduce it to people really easily. Because you can either help them with their turn, or you can talk them through it, or you can work them through the hard parts. They can still make their own decisions, right? You're not making their decisions for them. But a lot of the fiddly stuff in co-ops comes when the AI is acting. And if you have somebody controlling that part, it's really accessible for a lot of people. And and that's true of a lot of co-ops. And this is one of the heavier ones. Yeah, so Spirit Island is amazing. But Peter, I think you said you only had two or three negatives on your list. So I'm assuming your number two and number one are positives, right? Yeah, well, my number two, you guys have heard me talk about a lot, a lot, a lot. Mike already mentioned it. It's the mind. Yeah. I I love the game. I mean, I want to play it all the time. It's funny. I haven't played it much since we last talked about it, but every time I have played it, it's just been a hit. I have heard people having bad experiences. I've talked to people who are down on the game, and I just don't get it. Here's the only thing I I can see, because I've heard this a couple times. We're just sitting there staring at each other. In my opinion, and this is people have different opinions, Limited communication doesn't mean no body language at all. It doesn't mean you have to sit there like a statue. You're going to put your arm toward the middle of the table when you're ready to play a card, and maybe somebody does it at the same time. Then maybe you pull your arm back. There's body language that goes on in the game. It doesn't have to be overt, putting four fingers up if you have the number four, right? And people who say they're counting 
and that's how they're trying to have fun with the game, I don't get it. Why would you do that? Why would you ruin your experience with the game? Like, you know that's going to ruin the game from the beginning, so if you're doing that, you're just trying to create a bad experience. I don't get why you would say, oh, I'm going to play my 10 card 10 seconds in. Why wouldn't you do that too? Isn't it fun to win that way? No, it's not fun to win that way. You know, don't ruin the game for you and don't ruin it for everybody else. Enjoy the game for what it is. You know, it's a game where you can sit there and if you play it correctly and really get into it, you're going to meld with the people at the table. And it's so cool how that happens. And first, it's going to be, you're going to lose. You're going to lose your first two, three games because you're not going to get what their timing is. But then you sync up on timing. And that's what's so cool about the mind is that those moments where you sync up. So, yeah, I, I mean, I don't get all the hate out there. And I said it earlier. I mean, hey, I mean, I trashed on people's favorite games too. So I know people are going to trash on this one. But I, I mean, I love it still. Yeah, I can see if you're just playing it at a con or you're doing it for a review and you didn't like really want to play the game much. Maybe you would just kind of perfunctorily do something that could ruin the experience. But I'm with you. I think it's fine to have a little bit of body language-based communication. I think it makes the game way better. So if you want to play the mind and have a good time, I fully endorse doing that. Because like most limited communication games, as we discussed in a previous design episode, you got to bend those rules to be whatever your group will enjoy. So that people don't come to blows playing Magic Maze, for example. Yeah, and it's funny because I do something silly before I play a card that I'm really worried about. I'll circle the deck. You've seen me do it. Like, I'll take the card <laughs> yes. and I'll draw a circle around the deck. And then if I'm really, really nervous, I'll do it a second time. I'm not signaling a number or anything like that. What I'm doing is, like, that is my, like, nerve saying, okay, like, last chance, everybody. Like, this is it. I'm playing it. You know, people know I'm playing it. The card's there already. It's not giving anybody any information they wouldn't already have by my card being there. So, I mean, it's one of those things, though, that makes the game more fun. I mean, I don't know why I started doing it, but I had fun. Everybody laughed the first time I did it. So now I do it just kind of out of habit. So it's one of those games I don't even think you have to manufacture fun. I think you just have to not anti-manufacture fun and it will come. So obviously I I am passionate about it. Yes. (laughs) I'm really excited to find out what your number one is, Peter, because I thought it would be either The Mind or Pandemic Legacy Season 2. So now I'm kind of completely unsure what your number one is. Well, yeah, and if yours isn't Arkham Horror, then I don't know what yours is. Mine? I I don't think anybody could have guessed what mine is. All right, well, no more suspense. Let's hear it. (laughs) No, 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 a little more suspense. So we did this game pretty recently. I was pretty negative about it. I, I, I would say I was even quite a bit negative about it. And I don't know what happened, but... I decided to borrow my friend's copy, and I played it a lot, and it was awesome. And then I had been down on the app implementation of this game, but then I started liking the app too. And now I think uh, in a couple of days I have like $100 worth of expansions for the game arriving on my doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> so it is a, a very odd one for me, Sentinels of the Multiverse. Wow. One that I, yeah, I, I was a little bit lukewarm on in our review and hadn't played it in a long time. And then I don't know what it was, but it, I just wanted to try it again. And once I played it in person, the app became more fun because I saw the gears moving and understood what was going on with the app. And also a big thing I didn't realize, there are settings you can change now on the most updated version of the app that make the game play about three times as fast because the slow play of the app was a major negative for me. And yeah, I like I've been playing it a lot solo 
Um, I found a really good variant for Sentinels of the Multiverse that makes two-player work super great, which was another negative for me about the game, that there was no official two-player way to play without controlling multiple characters. Uh, I I showed it, uh, we played, I just had a game group last night, we played it three times, we were playing until 2am, and they all loved the game, they were like, this game is amazing, and I showed them, you know, we had used a tiny fraction of all the characters and the environments and the villains, and they were like, wow, there's so much stuff, and I'm like, yeah, I have a bunch more stuff coming. I would never have guessed this. If you had asked me at the beginning of the year, hey, would Sentinels of the Multiverse potentially be in your top 10 co-ops of all time? I would have laughed in your face, but... The way it's going, it totally could be. This this game has taken over my mind. I want to play it all the time now. And, and I, I am currently working uh, to track down every expansion they have. And I'm really excited about uh, the Obliv Aeon. I did not kickstart it because I didn't like the game at the time. But those final expansions are going to be available for regular retail purchase pretty soon, I think. So I'm really excited to get all of it. I want to have the entire collection. So yeah, I'm sure I surprised you, Peter. I, I don't think you would have ever guessed that that was my number one, but it absolutely is. No, no. And it's funny because when we first played the game, I really did like it. I think I was probably the number one proponent for it in the group. And my opinion hasn't dropped that much on it. I really think it's cool how everybody has their own deck and they play completely differently. You know me, though. The fiddly stuff really bothers me more than it bothers most people. But I remember I played it with Jerry. He bought it right away. There's a lot of things to love about the game. And I do think it probably is one of the best superhero games, if not the best superhero game that's out there currently. Oh, I would say it's the best bar none. Yeah. It's like, I guess like Legendary or uh, one of the other ones might kind of compete a bit, but no, no, it's it's, it's the best in my opinion. No, it's definitely better than Legendary. I, I, so yeah, it, it probably is the best superhero game that's out there right now. And so if it wasn't for the fiddly stuff, I would love it even more. I wish they had just taken out some of those modifiers. It didn't even have to be all of them. Like they don't bother me that there are modifiers. It bothers me how many of them there are. I just wish there were less. I, I don't disagree with you. I'm pretty good at keeping track of all that stuff. But I know that could be a big problem for people. By the way, um, <laughs> it's funny that I was very negative on the app. Not only did I have been playing the app more, but I also bought the $5 Sidekick app that keeps track of like the enemy's health and stuff as you're playing the regular game. So I've gone from not liking the app with Sentinels of the Multiverse to doing even more app integration. So yeah, that, that's, that's why it's my number one. Like My opinion has switched so drastically on it since the episode that it kind of blew me away. Nice. All right. Well, my number one, no guesses, huh? Uh, not Arkham. Uh, not Gloomhaven. Not Spirit Island, I don't think, because you haven't been playing that nearly as much as me. Uh, Flip Ships. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. It's the games I just dropped off with you today. It's the Unlock series. Oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. Those games are so good. And it, it extends beyond the Unlock series. It goes to Deckscape. It goes to Exit. All these escape room games. Unlock has really cemented itself with this latest group of games they've released. Oh, they're so good. The funny part is, I think one of my favorites now is going to be everybody's least favorite. I think everybody's going to hate it. But there's a murder on the train one. What's the name of that one? I don't even remember. I don't, I don't have it in front of me. But it's clearly inspired by Murder on the Orient Express. Right. That one is very different than any of the others, and I think, like I said, some people may even hate it because of it, but I loved it. I thought that one might even be my favorite one. I find myself with these escape room games, the harder ones are the ones I like less, believe it or not. 
I almost like an escape room game to be a little bit easy so that we can win it. You know, I, I like it to go down to time, but I hate when I feel dumb and I've got to look up a lot of clues. And so the Wizard of Oz one, I'm surprised that that was the hardest one. It certainly was by difficulty. It did a lot of neat new things, but I thought with that theme, they had an opportunity to appeal to a non-gamer crowd, a crowd outside of it. So I'm surprised they didn't make that one of the easier ones, but they they didn't. And so I wish they had done that, but I still think the game itself was super fun. Yeah, I mean, I I don't have Unlock on my list because I loved it when we reviewed it and I continue to love it. <laughs> but that's because my list was different than yours. It was the games where my opinion changed the most. So Unlock is certainly a fabulous series. I agree, my... My favorite of the de- of the escape room games by far. Yeah, and I mean, I know there's an argument for Exit, and people like the puzzles in Exit, and I do think they are a little better. But I think the thematic integration is so much better in Unlock, and I think they really do. Now they've got puzzles that use sound, they've got puzzles that use a lot of different senses, and I like that element, that they're using the app itself as part of the puzzles now. All right, so there you go. Longtime podcast listeners, I hope you enjoyed hearing about how our opinions have changed because just like you, we evolve and some games leave our collection and some games come back. So yeah, that was fun. Thanks, Peter. Cool. Well, I want to get into a brief design discussion real quickly. And I know other people have had this discussion before, but let's just talk about the industry in some terms that people may not understand and may get confused So we're talking about the terms designer, publisher, developer, and manufacturer. So just for people who don't have an idea of what the game industry looks like from behind the scenes, this is kind of a more basic behind the scenes lesson. And then we want to talk about uh, maybe Kickstarter a little bit and our our thoughts on expansion. So we're going to try to wrap this all up in about 15 minutes. Yeah, so let's let's start with, let's follow the, the path of a game through the different hands that hold it. So first is a designer. And what does a designer do? That's us. So that's the one we know the most about, obviously. But a designer comes up with the game. They do the initial playtesting, hopefully. And they change things. They adapt things. They go through multiple iterations. And sometimes they cut out the middlemen and become their own publisher. But most often, they find a publisher. And in some cases, this has not been the case for any of our games, but in some cases, they just sell the design over to the company whole cloth and they're done. Sometimes they don't even get a percentage. It's just a lump sum they're paid and they have nothing else to do with it. And it just goes over to the developer. But for us, we've always been involved in our designs as we worked with the publisher and as they came together and involved in the Kickstarters and all that kind of stuff. So designers are often... They often continue to be involved through the entire process, and heck, they're even the ones answering rules questions on BGG and stuff down the line. But they're the ones who create the idea in the first place and really get the core designed before it gets into other hands. Yeah, and then the publisher, if you think about a publisher, it works kind of like in the book industry, and actually there are a lot of parallels to the book industry. Publishers are the ones that kind of bring everything together. 
They get the design from the designer. They work with the developer, who we'll talk about in a little bit. They get the art put together. So they get the, all the art assets put together. They get a graphic designer, who's somebody who takes all these art assets, which are, you know, the images that you see on the game, and put it together in a logical way on the cards. Then they work with the manufacturer, who are the people who print the game. So the publisher really does a lot of the groundwork. And then they work with shipping people who ship the game. They work with retailers to get the game sold in retail stores. So the publisher is really the one who is the the manager, I guess, of everything. They, they take everything and they bring it together. And sometimes they do some of these steps themselves, but a lot of times they're working with a lot of contractors, as it were, and they work with those people to try to come up with a cohesive project. Yeah, and this is, a, again, I think where a lot of people might get confused and hard feelings might happen because you're going to have very different relationships between designers and publishers depending on what the contract is, depending on who the people are. Thankfully, this is a pretty rare thing, but we'll see sometimes designers talking about how disappointed they are with what the design looks like when it finally comes out. And that's usually where they're less involved and the publisher makes choices they don't agree with. Sometimes the graphic design is almost identical to what the designer had already brought to the table, and sometimes it's vastly different. Sometimes the theme changes entirely because of the publisher. You know, somebody was doing a fantasy game, and the publisher's like, all right, take all of that and make it into a sci-fi theme instead. So it's very interesting to see the different types of designer-publisher relationships, especially now that we're in those kind of relationships. And it's also interesting how behind the scenes it is. You're never going to hear anything about almost any of these stories, usually unless something really terrible happens and somebody wants to kind of spill the beans. It's almost always going to be behind the scenes. Yeah, absolutely. So if you have any problems with your game, you need replacement parts, that's that's who you contact. That's the publisher. If there's a Kickstarter that's up and it doesn't get delivered on time, now, it may be the designer's fault as well if they didn't deliver the files on time. But usually, <laughs> that's a publisher issue. Like, they either misinterpreted the amount of time or something happened in the background. And the publisher's got to be even the PR person. They, they really wear a lot of hats. Because if something goes wrong, they're the ones you're going to deal with a lot of times as well. Yeah, and even for rules questions, again, it depends on the relationship, but a lot of publishers don't even want the designer answering rules questions because games go through so many iterations. Some of our published games, I sometimes get rules wrong, not because I don't know the rules of the game, but because I've played 50 different versions of the rules of the game over time, and I forget which one actually ended up being in the final product. So some games you'll see the designers very active on rules forums, and some games you won't see them at all, especially with the bigger companies, because they have a policy that there's a very specific process to follow. Like Fantasy Flight is a good example. You need to go through the Fantasy Flight website and get the official answers that have been vetted by multiple people in their company. I remember when I was playing Warhammer Quest, the card game, I used to ask questions on the rules. And for just a little while, like a couple of days, the, the Sadler brothers jumped on, the designers, and answered my questions. And then it was very clear when they had gotten the director from Fantasy Flight to stop doing that because suddenly they were like, yeah, uh, ch check with Fantasy Flight. Email them. Here's the form. <laughs> yeah. So it, it is interesting how that can be a very different process depending on the game, whether, who you seek rules questions from. Yeah, and it's funny because I hadn't seen a contract that looked like that before, but we just had to sign one, or we haven't signed it yet, but on uh, one of our projects that we're not allowed to answer rules questions. We have to get them through the company. So it, it's very interesting how each company has their own policies on that, and that'll usually end up in the contract between designer and publisher. 
So after the designer hands over their design to the publisher, sometimes, and most of the big companies, will have some kind of a developer involved. And it's becoming more and more common nowadays, and sometimes designers will go to developers even before they pitch the game to a publisher. But usually, a publisher is associated with their own set of developers. And those are people who take the game and kind of sand away the rough edges or maybe add some excitement to the game, make some small tweaks that really sometimes it's that last 10% that makes that game so much better. A lot of the popular designers you might know the names of, a lot of them are also developers. And, you know, sometimes depending on how much they're involved in the process, they could even become, I guess, co-designers. But usually they're just making small improvements. And yeah, this is the one I know the least about, because until some of our recent projects, we never had a developer. We were working with smaller companies and we were the developers, you know, with the the designer, I mean, with the publisher, we had to figure out all the, the issues with our game and try to improve it. So it's 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 been a learning process for me. And in those situations, it's not that there were no developers. The developer is the publisher in that case. They just wear that hat as well. So some of the bigger companies will have outside development people. Sometimes there'll be a whole team of developers. Sometimes the designers work with the developers to make these changes. Sometimes the designers just hand the design over and the developer changes the game quite a bit. And the designer doesn't know what the game is going to look like on the other end of it. So it really is a role that is becoming more popular, it seems like, lately. People are starting to call themselves developers, at least openly. And I think it's cool because I think that's part of this game renaissance we're having right now is games are getting better because more eyes are looking at them before the public ever sees them. Yeah, I'd compare the developer again, going to like kind of the book analogy to the editor. And if you know, if you know books, the editor doesn't just check for (laughs) whether you have run on sentences or something. They actually help to refine the story and make suggestions and tell you to cut entire passages and that kind of stuff. They are very much a creative partner in the process of bringing this thing to uh, to light. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. And, and, yeah, some of our friends in the industry are officially developers for different companies, so it's, it's definitely growing. Yeah, absolutely. And then the last one we're going to talk about here, I guess we could talk about graphic design and art too, but is the manufacturer. And the biggest one that most people know the name of is Panda. We actually know quite a few people who work for Panda. And what they do is they make the physical product. So the publisher has an idea... And they go to these people and they say, can you do this? Or how can we do this? So they actually work with the publisher, if they're a good manufacturer, to come up with solutions to some of the problems for more tricky things like certain inserts or, you know, how do we get miniatures made for this game? So they have a lot of contacts as well as doing all of the physical printing, packing, all of that. And that's all done through manufacturing. So... Even though the publisher is responsible for the end product, they're not the ones making your boards warp, for example. That comes from the manufacturing plant. Now, they're the ones who paid for the manufacturing, so maybe they got too thin a cardstock or something else. But the manufacturers really, you know, end all responsible for what that physical product looks like when it gets in your hands. Yeah, and this is the one I know the least about because, as Peter already said, the publisher is the one who deals with this. I've never talked to any of our manufacturers. (laughs) I don't even know anybody who works for those manufacturing companies necessarily, but they've done good work so far. So thanks, manufacturers. You did it. (laughs) And then there – I guess we'll – since we've talked about them a little, we'll talk about the last two roles. There is the illustrator 
And those are the ones that make the, you know, the beautiful cover art you see. You know, if there's any cart art, they'll make the illustrations that go on the cards themselves. So they're not really involved with, like, the layout of the cards themselves. They're the ones drawing pictures. And it's interesting, the relationship that sometimes the designer will have with the illustrators. Because we will sometimes talk to them and give them a vision of what we had in our mind and let them know. Or they maybe want an overall feel, like, what... You know, what do you want this game to look like? Give me some examples of illustrations that other people have done or pictures from movies or whatever else. Like, where do you draw inspiration from this from? And sometimes they do it on their own, and and that'll be great, too. Yeah, my wife is an illustrator, and she illustrated one of our games, uh, Salvation Road, so I have a little bit more insight into this. But it's really interesting just to see how little sometimes designers and publishers know of what they want, and the illustrator just has to kind of pull it out of nowhere. But then sometimes they'll give extremely specific things. Like, this person needs to have a goatee, and this color hair, and they need to look like this, and this is the pose. So again, like everything else, it's going to vary drastically depending on who the publisher is most often, in this case, and uh, who's working with each other. And then the last one is graphic design. And graphic design is basically the layout of the cards, the layout of the rulebook, what the icons look like, making sure all that's clear. And sometimes the publisher will have multiple roles, too. I know a couple of the publishers we work with have been graphic designers themselves. So I I think that role seems to overlap with publisher more than most, although a lot of times they do hire graphic designers from without, because especially as they get more busy, they definitely don't have time to do multiple roles. And I don't think any of the companies we've worked with have done this, but I am very much of the opinion that the graphic designer is in many ways more important than the illustrator and is, at least for the playability of a game, making it easy to, like, understand what's going on, making sure the iconography works, all that kind of stuff. I think the graphic designer is one of the most important roles. If you have bad graphic design, you're going to have a muddy game that is tough to play and probably isn't going to perform well. So (laughs) it's one that I would not skimp on if any of you out there are going to publish your own games. Like, at least check with somebody and make sure your thrown-together graphic design is not terrible for the playability of your game. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so that's a little bit of a background on what it looks like. And, I mean, of course, there are several levels beyond that. There's wholesalers that sell to retailers. There's online retail. There's Kickstarter. And actually, speaking of Kickstarter, there's a lot of craziness going on with Kickstarter right now. I don't know how much we want to get into it. Oh, well, why don't you summarize a little bit of the news, and I, I imagine Steve and Colin might talk about it in more detail in one of their episodes. And they may have just covered it. I didn't get a chance to listen to the most recent episode. It just came out today, episode 41. I think Steve covered it a little bit, but just from an inside perspective. So the, the two major stories out there right now, one of them is a Kickstarter that basically was selling slots of 100 for their game on Kickstarter, and then every time that those 100 slots would sell out, they'd add another slot. So it was early bird, but it was early bird even more offensive because there were two penalties for coming in late. Number one is the price would jump up every time that you came in late, and the second part of it was that the ship date would go later and later each time as well, each group of 100. So a lot of this is going to come down to the same question with Kickstarter. And that is kind of a question of what is ethical or moral in the marketplace, but then that contrasted with what is going to help build a greater buzz for your game and kind of mentally manipulate people to buy your game more quickly. 
So I'm not sure where you are, Peter, but for me, I'm very much on the side of there are a lot of things that make me turn my nose up and say I don't like that the company is choosing to do that. Yep. But I vote with my wallet, and I usually don't back games from those kind of companies. At the same time, I see that they tend to make a lot of money with those strategies. So I can't really fault them for making money. Like, you got to do what you want to do when you're a business. But at the same time, I don't really like that they're doing it, and I would prefer if they didn't. So I guess I'm kind of in the middle, but overall, for any of these kind of things, I'm generally like, well, it's your game, it's your company, do whatever you want to. So in this case, with this game, I certainly didn't pledge it, and I can see how I would actively be less encouraged to pledge it as time went on, because I would have missed out on the better slots. But that being said, I'm still like, well, hey, it, it certainly, you know, for those who don't know Kickstarter, it's incredibly important to have a strong first day. That's often one of the biggest days of the entire campaign. Absolutely. And having a big first day becomes something you can put on your banner when you do ads. It gets people to look at it. It might get you being uh, one of the favorites on the Kickstarter page. So they post you in other places. Like, it's really, really important. So I don't love it, but I understand that if you have not just early bird, but kind of like graduated tiers of early birdness, you're going to get a ton of eyes and a ton of backings on your game right away. So. I don't really like it, but if you can do it and if it works for you, it's your choice. I'm not backing your game, but it's your choice. The thing that bothers me most about this is it doesn't make sense manufacturing-wise to me. Every graduated tier had a month later ship date to the point where if you're 10 or 12 tiers in, like it's 12 plus tiers in, you're talking about shipping games a year later, which doesn't make sense in the fact that they have to print all these games at the same time to save money. So when you print a game, if you print 100 copies of a game, you're going to pay a lot per copy. But if you print 100,000 copies of your game, you're paying way less per copy. Well, so, Peter, you're, you're working off a false understanding of the situation. This game is shipping all at the same time. The only thing that is shipping at those different months is the add-on piece. So everyone will get the core game at the exact same ship date to save them money. It is just the big extra piece that is shipping later, and that's just a consequence, I think. I mean, I don't know if this is right or not, but I think it's such an intense like tooling process or whatever that it takes a long time to finish each one for their manufacturer. But yeah, so it's not like you're going to be waiting for a playable version of the game for an extra year. You're just waiting for this final add-on for an extra year. All right, well, if the piece actually does take that long to manufacture, then I guess I get it. But it still feels weird to me. Well, and they were still charging more money for it each time. I think for me, that's the bigger ethical, like, I understand why they're doing it again, but I'm like, you're, you're kind of jerks, you know, like you're, you're just, you're just trying to drive business by either they were undercutting themselves in the beginning, so they were losing money on it, right? or they just jacked the price up. And I guess the undercutting isn't as offensive to me because you're hurting your own bottom line to get more advertising. But jacking the price up to, like, hurt late adopters, that bothers me more. All right, so moving on from that one, the other one that just came out was a game that is a re-implementation, so kind of a second edition of a game, where basically people are saying, and people have said this about our game as well, Salvation Road, when it was on Kickstarter, that, wait a minute, why are we paying full price for this game when we know we're going to be able to buy it cheaper once this thing funds and comes out. Now, unlike Salvation Road, which almost didn't hit its funding goal, so it might not have ever hit retail, so 
people wouldn't have an opportunity to buy it at those discounted online retailer prices. This game is well beyond its funding goal. So they're saying, well, why are we playing MSRP plus shipping to get this game when we know it's going to be out in retail and we're going to be able to get it cheaper and it's got no Kickstarter exclusives? Yeah, and by the way, the first game we were discussing is Cthulhu Death May Die from Cool Mini or Not. And the game Peter's talking about right now, I believe, is Eclipse 2nd Edition, right? Yep. Yeah, so this there's kind of two, at least in my mind, there are two major debates on Kickstarter. The first one is what is ethical versus what is good marketing. And the second one is the use of Kickstarter as a pre-order service, especially for large companies, versus the use of Kickstarter by smaller companies as the only viable way to actually get their game to market. I'm fine with big companies using their game as Kickstarters. Because the thing is, even for big companies, some of their games are more niche. And they don't know what the real market is for it. So I'm cool with them sort of getting an idea. Okay, there's this many backers. There's probably some algorithm these companies have that give them an idea of how many copies they need on top of that many people and how well the game will sell. So I understand that Kickstarter provides a lot of benefits. You're getting a more direct transaction with the people, even though you're paying a lot of fees. So I don't mind that. Especially when, and this is another big debate, like if they provide exclusives or at least really good deals on stuff, I love that kind of thing. So even if it's a pre-order for a game, but it's like, hey, we're giving you 30% off and you're getting it a month before everybody else, those are real tangible benefits that a lot of companies choose to include that I really appreciate. Now, I get the sense from Eclipse 2nd Edition, from the bit I've looked at it, that not only is it probably going to be available for cheaper on the online things than what you're paying now... There's no exclusives and no add-ons you won't be able to get later. And also, (laughs) this is kind of a different thing about the game, but apparently they, like, overproduce it to a ridiculous extent, and it's not that much of a change from the first edition. So you're paying a lot more money for very much the same game, except for, like, sort of non-essential holders for things, like cards and tokens and things. So I think there's a lot to kind of question about the Eclipse 2nd Edition thing. But in general, I don't mind big companies using Kickstarter, but certainly I personally am much more likely to kickstart a game from a company that would not come out otherwise, or there are games that would come out, but wouldn't come out to the extent. Like the publisher is a smaller publisher and can only afford to do a thousand copies, but because they do a Kickstarter, it does pretty well. Now they can do a 4,000 copy run and give the game a longer life and a better chance to become a prominent thing. So I certainly prefer Kickstarters for small companies, and those are the ones I tend to back. And I tend to kind of shy away from the big $500 miniature game Kickstarters. But at the same time, I, I, I'm not like automatically opposed to big companies. How about you, Peter? How do you feel about that kind of issue? I have no problem with this at all. There's a couple things people have to realize. For $100 plus games, retailers aren't going to carry that many copies of them. It is very unlikely that someone is going to go into a store and make an impulse purchase of $100 plus. So for these big games, I have no problem at all direct sales through Kickstarter. You're not hurting the friendly local game store here. And if people want to wait and buy it online, then wait and buy it online. I don't have a problem with that either. Kickstarter, as much as people want to say it is or isn't, is a marketing tool. And there are people on Kickstarter who aren't in other places. And if you want to overproduce your game, guess what? The best place to sell it is Kickstarter because you're taking no risk ahead of time 
And I don't mind that they're not giving any exclusives away. I mean, I think it's not the best decision. I think they'd sell more things, actually, if they had Kickstarter exclusives. And I know that's not necessarily a popular opinion, but it's true. You know, people will buy something that they won't be able to get later. I don't like exclusives that you can't buy later. But as long as they're offering it online at their web store or somewhere else and I can get all the stuff I want later on, I have no problem with Kickstarters with exclusives. As long as they are not completely Kickstarter exclusive where you can't get it anywhere else. But, you know, those that don't come in the retail box, Kickstarter backers are the ones that are making them able to produce this many copies of the games. If they want to give them a little extra because manufacturing now becomes cheaper the more copies you print... Absolutely, go ahead and reward those people who have helped you produce your game. But I don't even mind it if it's a pre-order. For me, it doesn't matter. It does a couple things. Number one is it gets games that would be harder to sell in the market that don't really have a home elsewhere. These couple hundred dollar miniature-based Kickstarters, they're not going to sell in retail. I mean, they just won't. So it helps with that. And number two is it brings more eyes to Kickstarter. And so more people who wouldn't have been on Kickstarter are now there looking at all the other projects. So yeah, I don't have any problems with people using it. Now, what I will say is I don't back those projects. I didn't back Eclipse. I liked the first edition, but I didn't back the second edition. I didn't see any reason to. But clearly some people do. And that's great because now that Kickstarter is going to happen. Exactly. Yeah. And it's interesting. I I agree with you 100%, Peter, about especially the big miniatures games and things. Unless you're a cool mini or not, they have enough buzz that they can seem to make it work. But a lot of companies, uh, medium-sized companies like Monolith, who did Conan and Mythic Battles, they now are only selling their games through Kickstarter. They're not even pursuing retail after the fact. Because, like Peter said, for big, big games that cost a lot of money, retail is not a viable option. You're not selling that many copies after the fact. So Kickstarter is kind of the the beginning and the end of your game, unless you do a second edition also on Kickstarter. And I don't have a problem with that. Let's be honest. How many games come out every week, month, year? There are hundreds and hundreds. Retailers have to be picky about which games they're going to put on their shelves. They're not putting these couple hundred dollar games on their shelves, or if they do, they may have one or two copies, but they have to invest a lot of money in there, which they may not get back right away. So, I mean, it makes sense. You have to warehouse these games. These games are also, not only are they more expensive, but they're very big, which means shipping's more expensive. Warehousing is more expensive. For one copy of your game, you know, you're taking up a lot more space than if it was a small deck of cards, which would be a lot easier to ship and warehouse. So I don't have a problem with these people not producing extra copies of the games. Now, I think if you have a small card game, it's a little weird not to to go to retail, But for these giant games, I totally get it. All right, so that's a little deep dive into Kickstarter. If any of you have strong opinions about any of this stuff or want to comment on our top 10 lists or even talk about some questions you have about the industry and how all those roles work, please, uh, you know, check out how to reach us. There's a lot of ways. And thanks for joining us on another episode of Co-OpCast. Great gaming, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Co-OpCast, your one-stop for cooperative game news and reviews. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Fate. They provide our bumper music. Also, check out Colin on his YouTube channel, One Stop Co-Op Shop. And follow us on Facebook at One Stop Co-OpCast. 
finally, join our Slack group by emailing us at MVP Board Games for continued discussion on these topics throughout the week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Hey, Mike, do you want to hear my top 10 ways to say goodbye? <laughs> see, that didn't disappoint. That was, that was good. That was better than the last few. I enjoyed that.